0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service.
1: Good morning. You guys can take a seat. Welcome to Grace. My name is Jeremiah Ebling, and I'm the pastor of student ministry here at Grace, and I have a really cool announcement for you guys. If you are a former student or a leader of our youth ministry, then we have a 25-year reunion coming up on November the 7th. And it's going to be, uh, actually, it's going to start right here in the worship center. We're going to take a tour of campus and do a lot of really fun things that evening. Uh, But it's going to be just an incredible uh, night of celebrating God's faithfulness to this church, to our our student ministry here. And uh, and just uh, enjoying a quarter century. Can you believe that? A quarter century of uh, memories and lessons that we share together. So if you're a former student or leader, uh, please join us for that. You can find out more details on our website. Well, back in uh, 2008, most of us were here for that. Uh, When this country was going through a financial recession, something very interesting uh, was taking place in our nation's seminaries, the divinity schools that are are here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, at a time when you might think that uh, enrollment would have declined significantly, um, especially in light of the fact that seminary is very expensive and that there are faster tracks to financial stability, um, it, it was very odd to see this, but in 2008, um, on average, nationally speaking, uh, the attendance, the applications for enrollment in our nation's seminaries rose by 8%. Just up the road here, uh, uh, I-35, uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary, they had a 10% increase in applications in 08. Uh, and, and just like in, after World War II, just like after 9-11, you saw this movement of people from all ages and all life stages towards seminary. People, people enrolling who were thinking about life a little bit differently. One Newsweek article covering this trend commented that historically, applications to seminaries and divinity schools, they rise during tough times. Well, why is that? Well, uh, it seems that when crisis hits, when crisis lands on us, whether it's relational or, or health or financial or, or for some other reason, what, what you see is that there is this tendency in the human soul to be drawn upward. You know, that, that our, our eyes that are so often fixed on the things of this world, that, that we look up and, and we, see, uh, we see the deeper truths and we, we yearn for the deeper truths that extend beyond this place. That the, the spiritual realities that we so often forget uh, or, or maybe even ignore, that those come more clearly into focus when, when suddenly life isn't going according to plan. Right? That's what you see happen. And, and in the practice of the presence of God, Brother Lawrence, he says this. He says, God sometimes permits bodily diseases to cure the disorders of the soul. He says God allows um, achings in the body oftentimes to bring healing to our spirits, to our hearts. When, when things aren't right out there, that oftentimes that can be the cause for things to get right in here. And, and we see this, this is, uh, it happens, it happens frequently. We'll see it in our lives when we're looking for it, that when, when crisis hits, when trouble lands on us, that, uh, that we begin to pursue God in a way that we hadn't before, maybe for the first time. And, and we, we seek him, we, we look for answers, we look for his help. And we'll even change careers at the age of 50 and apply to seminary to move closer to him in these times of trouble in our lives. Well, this, the Bible, the scriptures, they have a name for this place of, of pain and, and trial and trouble. And what you'll see in the Bible uh, the, is that these experiences, they're called the wilderness They're called the wilderness. And over and over again in Scripture, you see this pattern that God uses with His people that that He will uh, will push them out to a place to the wilderness. He will push them out to that place. And this wilderness that you see in Scripture, it it, it doesn't look like this. Okay? That's that's not the wilderness you're going to find in the Bible. Another way to say wilderness is the desert. Wilderness is it's dry, it's hot, it's barren. Okay, it looks a lot more like that, right? It's a place of isolation. It's a place of pain. The wilderness is full of sand and thorns and wild animals who are desperately looking for their next meal. Okay, but when you, when you look at your Bible, what you see is that there, is, there seems to be a theology of the wilderness in Scripture, and what you see God doing is he will bring He'll bring his people. He will bring an individual, one of his servants, and he will push them out to the wilderness. And and he will bring them to a place where not only do they see their need for him, but he'll bring them to a place out in the wilderness where he will come and he will meet with them. It's almost as if God, uh, that he waits for us out in the wilderness at times. But you'll you'll see throughout the Bible that God will do this with us, that he will push us out into the wilderness where we might, we might see him, or we might find him, or we might meet with him, okay, and, and in your future travels, I would just ask you to consider that, that the wilderness is probably in your future, that it's coming, That is coming for each one of us, it probably already has, and, and more are coming, and, and if you would, why don't you open your Bibles, let's look at, at the first chapter of Mark, and I want you to see how the wilderness shows up significantly, and how God will use it to prepare both John the Baptist and the Son of God for their ministries here on earth. Okay, in, in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it'll be on the screen, you can look at your Bibles too. Mark says this He says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, they went out to him. Okay, so you see, John the Baptist, I mean, first thing, first thing you see is as he, as he shows up and he begins his ministry, as he comes to bring this baptism of repentance where he will prepare the hearts of the people for the great coming of the Messiah, where does he come from? He comes from the wilderness, Right? The very place that 600 years earlier, through the prophet Isaiah, that God said would be the perfect place to prepare John for the ministry God would have for him. And then as John and he comes from the wilderness, he, and he baptizes in the wilderness, and then as he calls the people uh, from Jerusalem and Judea out to him, where is it they go to? You can answer, it's okay. The wilderness, that's right. They have to go out to the wilderness. That's where their hearts are going to be readied for the Messiah. That's where they're going to be prepared for for the Son of God, for God incarnate to show up. But look God's not done with the wilderness just yet. Look in, in verses 12 and 13 as Jesus shows up on the scene before he starts his three years of ministry look where he's going to go. Okay, once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. The Son of God is pushed by the spirit of God out into the wilderness. And, and he'll be tempted and he'll be tried and he'll be tested by the enemy out there. But it is in that same wilderness that the son of God is going to, he's going to meet with the father. And he's going to have to grow in, in trust and in dependence on his father while he's out in that wilderness. That's what you see God is going to do in, in, in Jesus' life in those 40 days that he'll spend out in the wilderness he's going to be drawing him closer and trust in, in, in him and faith in him and then and then jesus will then launch into his three years of ministry but you, you see even then and you see throughout the gospels that over the course of those three years that jesus will withdraw and he goes to these lonely and desolate places and he will be with the father there and he will pray to god and he, and he will spend time with him and and guess what lonely and desolate places is a synonym for the wilderness that's right that's where he will go to be with the father It wasn't a pleasant place, but it was where Jesus would go to be with with his father. It was where he he went to to grow in his his dependence on God. But look, you see, it's not just in the Gospels that you see God using the wilderness in this way. I mean, if you go all the way back, you know, throughout the Old Testament, but if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you will see it there. Because one of the patriarchs, Joseph, he will say to his brothers, he says, one day you guys... He says to his brothers, you guys are going to bow down to me one day. right?" And, and God says, you know, Joseph, you're right. They are going to bow down to you. I gave you that dream. But, but before then, I've got some time that I want you to spend with me out in the wilderness. And, and you'll see in Genesis chapter 37, that's exactly where Joseph's brothers will throw him. They throw him into a cistern in the wilderness. Okay, and, and that's just the beginning of it. He'll, he'll have several years that he will spend in the wilderness, in a jail, in, in these places where, where God is going to be doing something significant in Joseph's life. Okay? Not only that, but in Exodus, you'll see with Moses that God is going to tap Moses, and he's going to say, Moses, I want you to bring my people, two million Israelites, out of the mightiest nation in the world. And, and yet the palaces of Egypt that Moses lives in, they're not going to prepare him for such a harrowing task. They could never prepare him for that. God says, "No, I've got, I've got a wilderness for you, Moses, and and God will will bring partly because of Moses' sin, but but God will bring him to this wilderness, this place of exile, out in the wilderness, where Moses will be prepared for the ministry, the the service that God has planned for him. And then and then even then, in Exodus seven, when Moses comes back to Egypt and he comes before the Pharaoh, God God will say, he'll say. To the Pharaoh, he'll say, let my people go, that they may worship me in the where? You guessed it, the wilderness, right? Look, there may be no truer worship than the worship that we give to God out in the wilderness. Hey, last one. Uh, In 1 Samuel, King David, uh, king King to be, actually. David says, you know, one day I'm going to be king. And God told him that. He says, one day I'm going to be king. And God says, you know what, David? You are going to be king one day. But first, I have just the thing to get you ready to be king. And what will God do? God will send David on the run for eight years from Saul. And, and most of that eight years, guess where David is? He stayed in the wilderness. That's where he was for most of that time. Look, I hope that you're beginning to hear that God has plans for each one of us, each one of you, that, that will require that you spend some time with him in the wilderness first. Yeah, he's got that. It's in the plans. It's in the books. He's planned it from eternity past. He's got that for each one of us. He's done it with each one of his servants. He's done it with his people, and he'll do it with us. Okay? One scholar said this, that the wilderness is for the people of God. It's a place of hope. It's a place of new beginnings. See, it's, it's out in the wilderness that we experience not just our need for God, but it's where we see God undeniably show, show up and, and show us that, that he can meet those needs. Okay? But make no mistake, all right? the wilderness, it is not a pleasant place. Okay? It is not. And if you think back on, on the wildernesses that you've been through in your life, I'll bet that those were times of great loneliness and confusion and pain and anger. Okay, you see, when when we go out to the wilderness in our time that we spend out there, what we discover is that God is going to lay lay bare our souls. And he's going to show us just how how helpless and fragile and exposed we are. The wilderness isn't conducive to life, but it is a great place to die. And what God will do is He pushes us out into a wilderness, is, is He will take our pride and our self sufficiency and our self-dependence and our, our self-righteousness, and he will burn them away with the scorching sun and the sweltering heat. And, and, and he will give us the opportunity to become a humble people. God will do that with us out in the wilderness. Hey, and that's what God will be doing in our soul when, when he moves us out in the wilderness. And we will have this, this chance to become acutely aware of what it seems only small children and the elderly often grasp, and that is that we are dependent creatures. And it's out in the wilderness that we discover, maybe for the first time or maybe we're reminded, that, that we are not in control, that, that this life is not about us, that we are not that important. But, but when you're out in that wilderness, you know, and you're, you're convinced, as we often are, you're convinced that God, that he's distant, that he's uncaring, that he's forgotten about you, the Bible will tell you that the opposite is actually true. That is not what is happening. That God has drawn you out there to meet with you there, and and you see it. Hosea will say about the people of God. Hosea says that God will lead Israel into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And you'll see that's what God will do with us too. When He brings us out to the wilderness, He will speak tenderly to us and He will care for us there. Okay, it's a it's a place where we experience Him. We get to be in His presence out in the wilderness but it takes getting out there first and that's what God will do with us he'll He'll speak tenderly to us like he did with the Israelites And, and what you know what's beautiful about the wilderness is when you get out there it's quiet and it's painful but in that silence we have this opportunity to to hear from God you know, because we've left the noise and, and the cacophony of life back in the city behind and we get out to this place where, where God is speaking just as he was before, but, but we have a chance to hear from him and to respond and to obey. And that's what God will do out in the wilderness with us. That's what his plan is for us. That's what his hope is for us, that, we'll, that we will hear from him, that we will listen to him. Friends, what I hope to convince you of this morning is that the last wilderness that you were in, Okay, and, and the next wilderness that you're coming to, that God won't waste those experiences. Okay, God doesn't waste anything. And, and I, I hope to convince you of that this morning through what we see in Scripture and, and through what we're going to see in, in the passages that we look at this morning, that that is, that is true. Okay, and, and whatever gets you into that wilderness, whether it's a financial crisis or it's a damaged relationship or it's a disease of the body, you know, whatever gets us out there, oftentimes we... You know, we just look at it and we think this is totally useless. This is a waste. This is good for nothing. There's no way that anything good can come out of this, right? And, and that, that's oftentimes our perspective on it. Okay? And, and what God will, will be trying to do when we're out there is trying to convince us that that is not true, okay? that that's not the case, that it's not a good for nothing experience. And he will use these personal calamities that, that push us out into the wilderness. He will use them to begin to do something magnificent in our souls, Hey, maybe this metaphor could help you. The next time you're in the wilderness, would you consider thinking about God as a master carpenter? A okay, master carpenter. Look, He wasn't just doing that for two decades in, in Nazareth. He's been doing this throughout human history. That God is a master carpenter. And what God does as, as a master carpenter in our lives is that he will take He'll take these scraps, okay, that are, lying around, that are lying around our feet, kind of, you know, at a, at a carpenter's workbench. These scraps that we think are destined for the trash can that are, are definitely going to be in a dumpster. There's no way they could ever be used. And he will gather these scraps up that lie at our feet. And what he does is he makes something out of them. Okay, he makes something strong and sturdy. You know, and he takes these, these scraps from our lives that, that we think he ought to just throw away. And, and he makes something beautiful out of them. I mean, that's all that this particle board is, right? It's just the scraps. It's the trimmings. It's the leftovers. that ought to be in a trash can somewhere. And yet they're taken up by the, the, the hands of a skillful carpenter. And he uses those scraps to make something worthwhile. Something useful. Something strong something beautiful. God is a master carpenter. And, and these, these useless scraps of our lives that, that we'd rather be rid of, that, that we'd just like to get away from, he will take those and, and he will gather them up and, and he'll make something with them. And if we'll let him do that, that's what he'll do. That's his plan. One writer said this, that often the difference between where we are and where God wants us to be is the pain that we are unwilling to endure. Let me say that again. Often the difference between where we are and where God wants us to be is the pain that we are unwilling to endure. The next time you're in the wilderness, would you consider this? Okay? Would you consider, instead of, of doing everything you can to get out of there as quickly as possible like we normally do, right? would you consider allowing God, the, the master carpenter, would you consider allowing him the time that he will need to to pull these scraps together and and do something with them, make something beautiful out of them. Would you you consider allowing him that time? Because, look, when we're in the wilderness, we can't think clearly, right? I mean, it's almost impossible to see how what we are going through right now could ever be used in the future. But what God is trying to convince us of and what we see throughout Scripture is that if we will, if we'll allow him to do that when we're in the wilderness, if we'll give him the time that he needs, what he'll do is what any good carpenter will do. And these things that are are a waste that ought to be in a trash can, he'll take them and and he'll make something magnificent out of them in our souls, in our lives, in the lives of the people around us. He'll do that. But we've got to allow him to do that. He'll make us into humble and gracious and, and dependent followers if we let him. God is a master carpenter, and he won't waste anything in our lives. Hey, but look, there's something even more remarkable in our lives that God won't waste. Hey, there's, there's uh, another way that we get into the wilderness that it, it's even crazier that God will even use that, okay? We'll even find something good, something useful to do with that. And we're going to see what that is in the life of, of this man, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark that we looked at earlier. And, and what you see, uh, we meet Mark, the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. His name's actually John Mark. We meet him in Acts chapter 12. And when we meet Mark, we see that, that the Christian church is meeting in, in the house of Mark's mom, okay, where Mark lives with his mom. Right? It was a first century failure to launch. Mark's still living at home with his mom. And, and all of Christianity is meeting in the upstairs room of the house of Mark's mom. Okay? And, and this is the house that Peter will run to in Acts 12 when he gets out of prison. But we meet Mark, and, and as we're meeting him, he meets the apostle Paul. And, and uh, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas is actually Mark's cousin. Paul and Barnabas, they are going to be the first two missionaries ever to be sent out by the church. They're the first two to ever be sent out with the gospel to reach those who've never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. The first two missionaries. And, and Paul and Barnabas, as they prepare for this first missionary journey, what they do is they grab Mark and they say, Mark, you're coming with us. You're going to be a helper. And so now it's, it's Paul and Barnabas and Mark. And then they take off on this journey and, and Mark doesn't even make it to the second city. He's not even a quarter of the way into this missionary journey when, when he takes off. He leaves them behind. I guess he missed mom or something. I don't know where he was headed. But he deserts them. Hey, and, and we don't really know why he left, but, but we know it wasn't good. In fact, it was so bad that as as Paul and Barnabas, they finished their first missionary journey, they're preparing for their second one. And as they're preparing for that, Barnabas says, hey, let's take Mark with us again. And, And this is what Paul's response is in verse 38. Understandably, Paul did not think it wise to take Mark because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And Paul says to Barnabas, he said, no way. We're not bringing Mark. You remember what he did last time we brought him? He abandoned us. No. And then the very next verse. Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement over Mark that they parted company. They split up. The first missionary team ever sent out by the church is broken up because of Mark. The very first dream team, the very first Christian dream team ever sent out, Mark splits them up. Way to go, Mark. (laughs) Well done. You just broke up the first missionary team in all of Christendom, and guess what? Christianity is small enough That everybody knows about it. Mark, he he abandoned, he deserted Paul and Barnabas. But guess what? That wasn't Mark's first major blunder. No, that was his second major one. The first one was actually months earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is betrayed, when he's arrested on that night. You see that that Mark was in that very garden. He wasn't one of the original 12 uh, uh, disciples or apostles, but he was in that garden And he was there. And you'll see in Mark chapter 14, it'll be on the screens, in Mark 14, that a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Hey, look, Mark Mark is the only gospel writer to include this detail. And uh, most biblical scholars and, and even some early church accounts will say this is autobiographical. Okay, this young man is Mark. He's talking about himself, and what you see is that as Jesus is being arrested and led away by these Roman guards, that one of the guards grabs Mark's cloak, and Mark slips out of his cloak, and he runs away with with nothing on. Okay, so now not only is Mark running home, naked, to his mom, right, we're supposed to be embarrassed for him, and maybe even by him, not only that, but but he has deserted the Son of God in his most desperate hour. He's deserted Jesus. Jesus. Hey, look, it is very hard to get your name in the Bible. I mean, really hard. You know, very few people make it in. But Mark managed to do it several times, and mostly for all the wrong reasons. He, he abandons the three most important people, or, or some of the most significant people in all of Christian history, in all of human history. He abandons the Son of God, even. Can you imagine what that experience must have been like for Mark. I mean, I I don't think you recover from that resume, do you? I think you're done at that point. Right? Imagine the wilderness of of despair and, and regret that Mark must have been in for months afterward. You know, he must have thought, my life is done. It's a waste, useless. God will never use me. No way, no how. But that's not what you see that God thinks about him. Because as Mark, as he is out in this wilderness, as he's floundering out there and and despairing of life itself, feeling useless and worthless, what do you see God do? God reaches down and, and he picks Mark up. And he says, look, I'm not done with you. Yes, Mark, you are a total disaster. But I'm not done with you. And now that you know who you truly are, Mark, I want you to see what I am able to do. I want you to see who I am. And what's what's incredible is that God God will do such an amazing work, such a transformative work in, in the life of Mark. That years later, when Paul is is he's done, almost done with his ministry and he's writing his last letter, 2 Timothy 4, he says this. Paul will say, He will say, Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And and even more than that, God will take this man, Mark. He will choose this man this colossal failure, and he will say, you are the perfect person to write the very first gospel that will go out to millions of people for thousands of years and tell of the glorious news of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's going to be you, Mark. You see it? God doesn't waste anything in our lives. He will will take the wildernesses that he creates in our lives, that that he allows into our lives. He'll even take the sin that pushes us out into those wildernesses. He will take those things, and he will make something out of them. He won't waste them. And we see him do that in, in the life of this man, Mark. We see God giving us hope that he can do something incredible with the wildernesses that he brings into our lives and that we bring into our lives, that we cause, that we create. He'll do that. I mean, really, who better to write about the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ than, than one who knows that he needed it by the very Savior, from the very Savior, that he had turned his back on? I mean, who sings more loudly or more joyfully about the mercy of God than one who knows that he needed that mercy? You know, God doesn't waste anything. He won't waste anything in our lives. If we'll allow him to do that, he won't waste anything in our lives. And, and just think about the implications of this for us, hey, the, the sin that's in your past, the greatest failures that are in your life, the sins that you are ashamed of, the people, the relationships that hey, you have most severely injured, you know the, the evil that you have exposed your soul to, All right? these things that are in our past that, that we feel are a waste, useless, that bring us shame and embarrassment. Think about what that means for those things. That God, he won't even waste those. He won't. Okay, in, in our darkest hours, each one of us, I think we probably, we probably hear this nagging lie, this voice in our head that says, the things that you have done, they have disqualified you. They've ruined you. You're, you're, you're as good as done. God will never be able to use you again. And when we hear that voice out in that wilderness, the Bible will speak louder than that voice. And will say, that is not true. God has something, and he can even use this. That's how good he is. He can even use this. He can make something beautiful even out of this. Hey, l- let me a- offer another way to think about this truth that God doesn't waste anything in our lives. Okay, uh, Every time the United States sends one of these okay, into outer space, the heaviest and, and uh, one of the most expensive elements that we will send in the space shuttle will be Water. Okay? The cost of, of getting a kilo of water into space, $10,000. Means that a, a kilo of water going to space is is just a little less than the cost of the same amount of yellow gold here on Earth. Okay? It is expensive. And that's why NASA has has spent millions and millions of dollars to create a system where they could turn wastewater into clean water. And they have this 250 $250 million machine now that, that does just that. It will take the astronauts, it'll take their sweat. It'll take the humidity from their breath. It will even take one other very abundant wastewater source. Okay, kids, ask your parents later. And and it will turn that waste into water that can be used for washing and for food preparation and for drinking. And what's even more amazing is that not only is this going to save NASA, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but that water, that that purified water from that machine that came from that waste, it is cleaner, it is purer than any water you'll drink out of the water fountains here at Grace Covenant Church. Hey, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what they're able to do, but that's what we're talking about here. You know, God doesn't, he doesn't waste anything, okay, and, and these wildernesses that we find ourselves in, okay, that these painful moments that we experience in life, even the sin that pushes us out to this dry desert place, you know, where it feels like God has forgotten us. He says, no, he's, he's the great recycler and he will take that waste. He will take those things that are good for nothing and useless and, and he'll do something with them. And what he'll do, you know, one of the things he'll do with them is he will help us. He will cause us to be able to serve people more effectively through those times in our past. That's what he's going to do. And, and Matt's been talking about it for the last several weeks that, that one of the things God will do with these wildernesses in our lives is that he will cause us to face out and to gaze into the soul of another person who is going through a wilderness that we have walked through. And we will be able to come alongside that person to say, hey, look, I've, I've walked through this too. I've met God in this place, and I want you to meet him too. I want you to come, and I want you to be able to worship in this place. Not run from it, not flee from it, but worship in this place. That's what we can do. And we can say, when God connects us to these people, we can say four of the most powerful words in the English language. You are not alone. And God will give us the opportunity to say that to people. That is what Paul is trying to convince us of in 2 Corinthians 1, that our wildernesses, they prepare us for better ministry. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, all our wildernesses, so that we can comfort those in any trouble, any wilderness, with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. You see, one of the reasons why God is going to bring you out to a wilderness, why he will meet with you there, is so that then you will be able to turn around and help someone else going through that same wilderness meet with him as well. Okay, that's what he's going to be doing. And A.W. Tozer, he said it this way. He says, I doubt whether God can use someone greatly until he has first broken them deeply. See, there's a purpose to the wildernesses that we find ourselves in. Whether it was something God brought into our lives, something we created through our own evil, our own sin. There's a purpose there, and what God will be doing, if we allow it, is, is he, will, he will be breaking us deeply in that wilderness experience that He might use us, that He might use us mightily in the life of somebody else. Hey, to close, I'd like, to, uh, I'd like you to hear a story of a friend of mine who spent a number of years in a wilderness, and and uh, she ended up in that wilderness because of a, a tragedy. That tragedy had put her in this wilderness, but her anger kept her in it, okay, and and. I want you to hear that God didn't waste even a moment of her time out in that wilderness. And what she was able to do is she was able to, to find a, a fellow traveler going through that same wilderness. And she was able to come alongside them and help them to meet with God just as she had done. Okay, let's, let's hear that.
0: When I look back on my childhood, I believe that my life started out as one of those stereotypical happy families that people dream of. My, with two great parents to lead me and two older brothers to goof off with, I didn't have any complaining to do. Mm-hmm. But the dream of a perfect family didn't last for long. Right after I turned 15, my oldest brother Josh got sick while he was a junior at UT. He kept getting sicker and sicker, and I didn't know what to do, so I became pretty closed off to anyone and everyone, specifically God. Thanksgiving morning, 2008, Josh died. I was shocked and hurt, but I think that I was more than just upset. I had become apathetic towards God because I didn't think He cared about us anymore. So I quit caring about God. This apathy towards God left me in a hard place. I constantly felt alone and broken, and it was my own personal wilderness. My own personal relationship with God was crumbling due to anger. I wanted God to pay me the debt I thought he owed me. I wanted him to give me answers. Fast forward four years later to my freshman year at Texas A&M. I was truly starting to seek Jesus for the first time because I was in desperate need of healing. Four years of being lost in the wilderness had hardened my heart, and I was ready to let Jesus take that from me. I knew I wanted God in my life, so I started to confront Him about my hurt from losing Josh. I had always wanted God to give me a specific reason on why He had to take Josh at such a young age when He had His whole life ahead of Him. But this time, when I came to God, I realized that He didn't really owe me anything. I had to let Him heal me and let Him take all the questions and anger that I had because I wasn't strong enough to carry them anymore. After about five months of praying and reading through God's Word, I slowly became okay with the fact that I may never receive answers or reasons as to why Josh was taken from us so early. I had to let go of the entitlement I felt and be okay with just letting God's plan unfold even if that means leaving me with questions. But God is slowly transforming my heart into one of compassion and peace towards things we may not understand. It was the kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. I did nothing to deserve the peace that God gave me because I had always been angry and never compassionate, gentle, or understanding, but that's exactly how God handled me, gently with compassion and completely with love. After that first year at a and I had decided that I was going to let myself move on from feeling trapped after losing Josh. I didn't want to hold back in life anymore because of what had happened to me in the past. I put my faith in Jesus to bring redemption and healing and to give purpose to losing Josh, even if I never got to see that purpose. I knew the wilderness that I had been through wouldn't go to waste, but I needed to trust God with that. Since choosing to accept God's peace, I didn't need answers anymore, and instead, God had graciously let me use my story of losing Josh to minister to others. Right after finding peace with my own wilderness, my friend died in a car accident while he was driving home to Austin. Immediately, God prompted me to contact his family. I knew he had a sister about my age and my heart broke for her, losing her brother so suddenly like that. I knew the heartache that she was going through. After talking with my mom, I decided to reach out to his family and to let them know that we exist as a resource for them, simply because we were just a few years down the road of losing a brother and a son. Through our unfortunate similarity, I am now friends with his sister and have gotten to talk and cry about losing our brothers and go through the healing process together. We all struggle through different wilderness experiences, and while we may not understand God's plan, one thing I do understand, is that God doesn't waste anything.
1: It's true. He doesn't waste anything. Look, God, he's the master carpenter. He's the great recycler. And he won't waste a single moment of, of your wilderness experiences. And he will use you to change the life of somebody else, to bring them hope because of, of what you've gone through. they will do that. But hear this. Hey, you have to let him. You have to let him do that. Hey, you have to lean into him when you're out in the wilderness, even when he hasn't answered any of your questions. You have to lean into him out there, even when you're tempted to believe that your sins have ruined you for good. Hey, God doesn't waste anything, but but he can't do that. He won't do that unless you let him. All right, let's pray and let's ask God that he would cause us to believe that is true, that he is greater than anything in our past and any wilderness we've been through, and that he can use those things to allow us to serve others better. Let's pray for that. Father, we, we come to you as uh, a people, uh, many of us um, might even be going through a wilderness right now, uh, this experience where it, it seems like you may be far away, and yet you promise us that uh, you are closer perhaps than, than you've uh, even ever been before and i pray that you would you would preach to our souls you would convince us of what you have said is true and that that is that that you have uh, this plan for us that that we might be moved out to a wilderness for for one reason or another and that in that place that you you wait for us there you wait to meet with us there and and that these experiences in our lives that they're not wasted they're not useless lord that that even you, because of your might, because of your power and your greatness, you can do something incredible with them. But we have to be patient, and we have to allow that. We have to be seeking that, Lord, and give us hearts that long for that, that, that um, give you the time and the space, Lord, that you need to, to begin to create something wonderful and beautiful out of, out of these scraps. We pray that in your son's name.
0: Amen.